What's up, friends? How are you guys? Did you get any sleep? Oh, first night of camp is always a rough one because you're, you're so jacked, so jazzed. You're all hopped up on Mountain Dew, all that stuff, right? No? Yeah? Okay, yeah. I love it. I love camp, guys. Remember, this is a place for being open, open to what God could possibly do. And what we're talking about is God's truth. What is it? Who is it? Remember last night we talked about the fact that not only is truth a claim, God actually says that truth is a person in Jesus. So let's, let's read some of his words, okay? Why don't you open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be back there. Starting around verse 19. Let me just give you some key thoughts to remind you where we were last night, right? So God always existed. To blow our minds, God has always existed. He invented time. Our structure, our idea, the, the ticking of the clock, all these things, are, the idea of time was invented by him. He's outside of it. He's eternal. And Jesus is eternal as God. God is the creator and source of all truth. When you create everything, you get to decide what that thing's purpose is. So God created you, he decides your purpose. He is the author of truth. He is truth. Remember, Jesus exists at the beginning with God, being God in full equality with him. You guys, and I'm so grateful to be able to walk this week out with you guys to talk about some of the most important questions that you'll ever wrestle, ever wrestle with. And so let's talk about this morning the truth of what we call scripture, your Bible being a collection of books. Some may have called it a library over time, right? Because what's a library? Just a bunch of books in a building, right? And your Bible is actually a library of smaller books leading over and being written by many people over thousands of years. And God reveals himself in different ways we talked about last night, right? So he has very general ways of revealing himself in things like creation, right? You look at the mountains around us. I was walking up over the lake. I could see like the swirling mists looking like it was like Lord of the Rings or something over the lake and the mountains. And the... I was just like, wow, this is incredible. Thank you for painting this picture, God. He reveals himself in those places. It stirs something in us. He also reveals himself in our consciences, right? These things that maybe you don't even have to be taught, but you just think are either good or bad, things that you think are right or wrong. And you don't know why, but we would say that is God's morality in you. He has built these things himself into people. But then he also reveals himself specifically in things like his word, his scripture, and then who... The scripture tells us about being Jesus, a person. Like you guys see how it gets funneled further and further into the person of Jesus. And the fact that you and I even have Bibles, some of us sitting in our laps or on, you know, usually a lot of times on your Bible app, things like that. The fact that you even have that in your hand today, thousands of years later, God having preserved the words in front of you is an incredible miracle. Insane. And men and women, like the video said, have fought to preserve that book 
have died to preserve that book in front of you. Given their lives. It's been translated from its original language into many different ones all over the world. Ours being English, and it's in your laps on this table today. It's incredible. Uh, last night I talked about the glasses, right? So I was in high school. I was about to start driving, and I was like, this is tight. I'm going to drive. This is going to be great. I'm 16. Uh, I can't wait to just not have to have somebody with me. You know, the freedom, it just feels good. And I get to the DMV, and I get in there, and I don't know. I, my parents love me, but I didn't really go to an eye doctor. <laughs> I don't know why. I, didn't, I just didn't know I had any problems with my eyes. And everyone else in my family, nobody needed glasses. And so uh, I got into the DMV, and I looked at this thing, and you know, I had probably always scored like decent or whatever, or made educated guesses when I went to my doctor. But I got in there, and they're like, yo, you don't see very well. <laughs> we don't know if we want to give you a license. And I, was, and I was like, okay. So then, like I said last night, I went to the eye doctor. And I, it was a revelation. I, I sat there, and you know they do the things where it's like, and they're like, is this better? Is this better? Is this better? And we got to my thing, and I was like, this is what the world looks like? All of these beautiful colors. I can see your face. I can read that thing. We get, oh. It was incredible, right? Because, I mean, I'd never had any problem with what's right in front of me. But anything more than about 10 feet, I was like, yeah, that's like a, a guesstimation of that number or that sign. or that." And I, I felt like in that moment, I saw through these glasses to the world for the first time. I was able to interpret the world around me. And your Bible, your scriptures, that is what they are to us as Christians. Uh, we're talking about truth this whole week, right? And let me tell you, this may sound controversial, but it's not. All of truth is not contained in your Bible, okay? All of truth is not contained in your Bible. But what your Bible is are the key truths that God has given you in order to see and weigh every truth claim in the world. So your Bible will not tell you how to do open heart surgery, right? You can't read second Hezaharda and, and actually, okay, here's how you cut and stitch. It doesn't do that. It's not meant for that. It's not going to give you exact equations or the Pythagorean, I didn't do well in math. A Pyth Is there a math teacher here? A Pyth yeah, a Python theorem um, and a, there, what is it? Yeah, there we go. Some smart guy a long time ago. It's not going to give you that equation, but what it is going to give you is a measurement, a weight, a, an interpreter, a filter in which to weigh every truth claim in the world. So if someone says, if you steal my pencil or my pen, I am allowed to murder you. What? Well, okay. All right. Well, why is that true for them and not for you? Well, because you have the truth of scripture. You have the general revelation of God, which in your heart says probably don't murder people, right? But ultimately, you have a scripture which says, do not murder because people are valuable. They're made in the image of God. And for you to take their life is not yours, but God's. You guys see what I'm saying? Scripture is your glasses that you turn on to say, look, I, I, the world around me is not built to support my faith because it is broken. And, and, but what I do is I put on these glasses and here's the deal too is the world will hand you other sets of glasses. 
It will say, hey, actually, you need to see the world this way. And we have the choice often whether or not we pick up those glasses and read the world around us through the world's perspective, through the world's filters, or if we put on the glasses, the filter of God in his scriptures and weigh the world and its truth claims around us. That is our role. That is our, 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 what we seek to do. And that is what, why God gives us his revelation in scripture. So this morning, I wanna take you on a similar journey of asking the question, do we believe the Bible is true? And so in John 1, 19, we see John the baptizer, who we call John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, uh, my son, uh, he's four years old, and he, you saw a picture of him. He is incredibly rambunctious. Like, it was a uh, complete, he was holding that little chicken in his uh, preschool class, and I was like, please don't murder it, please don't mur murder it, right? So most of the time when we talk about uh, which would be wrong. <laughs> uh, most of the time when we talk about, uh, you know, like Bible stories and things, it's hard for him to sit still. And so we have to, we have to do like reenactments and stuff. And we have to talk about scripture through stories. And one of his favorite characters is this guy who we call JB, John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was super weird. He lived outside the city in the desert. He wore camel skin. He ate honey and, and crickets, and he, but he, what he was was the proclaimer, and he was the cousin of Jesus. And as Jesus begins his ministry, in the, uh, this, this guy's out in the wilderness, he's preaching the message of repentance and baptism to the people, and they all want to know who this guy is, right? They, they're just, just like, who are you? You're saying all these crazy things about the one who's to come, the Messiah, the one who we've been anticipating. And so they look in John chapter, 19, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 24. They come, and uh, this is the testimony of John, it says. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from, the Jeru from Jerusalem to ask him. So he's outside the city. They send him these priests, these religious folk, to ask him, who are you? And he, John, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He's saying, I am not your savior. I am not your Messiah. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means rescuer or savior. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, are you who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So they're saying, look, we whittle it down. Just give us the answer. Who are you saying you are? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So Christ, meaning Messiah, rescuer, he's quoting what you would call your Old Testament, which was at the time their only scriptures. And their Old Testament promised that before your rescuer came, before your Messiah, your Christ came, there would be one who calls out in the wilderness saying, make way the path of the Lord. He's saying, I am this man, which means the one who's to come is close. So why were they coming to him at all? Why were these Jewish religious priests coming to him at all? Why were they curious at all? Well, it's because they had what we would call an Old Testament expectation. 
In your Old Testament, if you read it, it's an unfinished saga, guys. It is an unfinished book. There's no resolution. Uh, you guys live in Ventura, so you know about Six Flags, right? Um, and one time I got stuck on Goliath. You guys know that one, right? So super scary, terrifying um, <laughs> roller coaster. But you go, re- if you know about Goliath, it's like one of the biggest drops ever. You go underground, right? And you're, you're t- t- you guys know that feeling, right? Start, and you're like, I hope I don't die. This is really dumb. Why did I do this? We got to the part where like, you're about to start to crest. We got here and we heard, and we were like, now I'm gonna die. Okay, nice. You know, you uh, big ups, God. And uh, th- this moment on the edge of anticipation for what was about to come, we were stuck. And that's where these Jewish people found themselves. At the edge of anticipation, their, their Old Testament ends with a cliffhanger, with this, oh, you're almost there. There's one who is gonna come. And, and you see, because their Old Testament is a revelation of God, right? It tells the story of humankind. It says, look, you are made in the image of God, you know, Adam and Eve, and you know, they, they have the choice for life or death, but they do choose life apart from God. And what we know, and we'll find out again yesterday, is that sin separates from God because God is holy, right? So he puts them outside of the garden, but he promises there'll be one to come who will make this right. And he creates a, a dynamic between God and man, an understanding that only can life pay for death. In Genesis chapter three, verse 21, the Lord God, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The skin had to come from somewhere. So God puts to death an innocent animal for the sins of Adam and Eve, creating this dynamic saying the innocent dies for the guilty and an understanding which would be flushed out in your Old Testament books. Hebrews 9.22 describes it this way. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So all while God promises the one who is to come. And then you, you get to Exodus and the release of God's people from Pharaoh and all these things and the law is given Right, But before that, you have the shedding of innocent blood over the doorposts so that the Spirit of God passes over and that those firstborn don't die. And the innocent dying for the guilty. And those who don't have the blood covering die. And God gives the Ten Commandments, saying things like, no other gods before me, no idols, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, etc., 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 leading to 613 commandments. Right? I can barely remember the Ten Commandments. 613 laws in your Old Testament, not to mention all the ways that they started to interpret and expound these laws and say that there's actually these, these little you know, tendrils and all these things that come from these laws making more and more burden upon people. And what they found was that it was completely impossible for a person to uphold all of these laws, right? It was a weight too hard to carry, it would crush. And that was the point. Humankind, man, was never meant to approach God by doing good stuff, 
We couldn't. It was never, the law actually revealed that we can't. God gave this crushing weight of the law so that we could see we can't do it on our own. It's impossible. And so, like Romans 7, 7 says, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. You guys see, the law shows us that our sin and the weight of our sin is insurmountable. You can't conquer that mountain of sin. It is crushing. For I would not have known about the coveting of the law had not said you shall not covet. It is revealing the hearts of men. And so what is God's requirement for sin? The shedding of innocent blood. God creates the rules, remember? I don't necessarily understand why, but life pays for death. Blood covers sin. It's like Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility, right? You can't see this sin. In the Old Testament, you have things like offerings, right? You have burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, 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 all these things. Just because our sin is so great, we can't overcome it ourselves. We have to offer innocence. But that law was never meant to save. We cannot approach God based on our good behavior or our morality. God always intended us to come to him through the sacrifice of the innocent. And we will talk a lot more on that tomorrow. So the Old Testament finishes like a really poorly written book Okay, there's no resolution. It's just, you read the end of your Old Testament, it's like, look, somebody's coming. And then there's 400 years of silence. But your Bible, although you read small stories all throughout your Bible, these, these, the sagas of all these people, all these places, all these things being done, there is an overarching story. There's small stories, but there is one big story of the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ who is to come. And you can trace it through your whole Bible, your whole Old Testament, leading up to Jesus. They were left, these Jewish people, waiting for the Messiah who would deliver them from not only the oppression of the Roman Empire, the thumb of the empire, but would deliver them from their sin and set them free. That was what they were dealing with. Right? They were, the, they were in the opening act before the headliner of the band. Your Old Testament ends with that promise. From Malachi into the first book of the New Testament being Matthew. So back to John 1. John the baptizer, the one who's in the wilderness, paving the way, he is teaching and preaching. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. And he's giving them the business, man. Fire and brimstone, he's telling them like it is. He's not holding back. And I love John. He's so passionate. And he's inviting his listeners to embrace the truth. He's saying, look, those who have their arms crossed to God's truth, you, I know there's been thousands of years leading up to this, but I must implore you to open your arms like I've been asking you guys to. Open your arms to the possibility that the truth looks different than maybe even your religious teachers are teaching you. See, they knew the scriptures. They knew what to expect. 
harshly. So they ask him, if you're not the Christ, who are you? Right? Why are you baptizing if you're not Christ? You're not Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, right? Pretty practically, here's some water. I'm dipping people in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to even untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. Uh, you guys, I'm not like a crier, you know? I don't cry easily. I didn't cry at my own wedding. Actually, my wife was like super mad at me for that. <laughs> I was like, come on, give me a break. <laughs> Can't control it. Uh, I probably should have poked my eye or something, right? Like sprayed a little uh, pepper spray. <laughs> but I'll tell you, emotional videos on YouTube, <laughs> right? Like, like army people coming back, surprising their families at football games, things like that. I also have a sister who's uh, severely disabled. And if anytime there's a kid with Down syndrome or something making a three-point shot or running the football, I'm done, man. I'm laid out. I am weeping. And art that builds. Songs, I really like music that just builds up and gets big and big and big. And, and then eventually it's like, like releases, right? So like as a kid, I was super weird about music. I would go, we'd go to the thrift store, grew up in a pretty poor family, single mom. But man, when we hit Goodwill, it was so awesome. So I would go, I'd look in the CD section and I would go right for the symphonies, right for all the classical music because that's, what, that's that guy's bags, man. They love that. They'd be like, oh, we're gonna start here. And then, blah, 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 and then I'd be like a six-year-old just like, it's beautiful. Life has meaning. So this is what they're doing here. Building anticipation for the one who is to come. Building, building. There's so much, so much expectation. And then in verse 29, John says something that seems crazy. The next day, he, meaning John, saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold. So he sees his cousin, right? Who here has a cousin, right? Which of them are the Lamb of God which takes away the world, right? So I have 23 cousins on one side of my family. I have a lot of cousins, right? None of them are the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, <laughs> Okay, they're all very flawed and they are very much so intimately acquainted with my flaws. But Jesus' cousin John proclaims this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes the man who has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. Remember Jesus was born after John. John is older than him on this earth, but he recognized him. And what does he say? He takes away the sin of the world. This is a new thing. No longer is it the cloak of invisibility. No longer is it just covering up sin. He takes away the Lamb of God, the innocent one, John confessing, you, he has lived a perfect life up to this point. Someone who he knows is his blood and his family. The uniqueness of Jesus and his revelation to John is astounding right here. Unbelievable, like unreal. And the people hearing it would have been like this. <gasps> what? 
and they would have expected to see a king walking in, being held on a throne or something, but they saw meek, humble Jesus in his perfection walking forward. He takes away. It's like the, um, <laughs> this is a little bit crude, but I just think of like when somebody's done some serious business in the bathroom and, you know, there's like, spray some air freshener and you're like, nice, now it smells like poop and flowers. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's not, you know, you're trying to cover it, but it's still there. It kind of stinks underneath. And, you know, it's really a question of whether or not which one's going to win out. This is the one where what he's saying here is that, that stank, that's gone. He can actually take it away. He existed before him. He's not speaking about his age. He's saying the preexistent one, the one who came before how did, know, how did John know that Jesus was the Son of God? Friends, he knew his Bible. How can he weigh the truth claims? He saw who was before him and the matching of the words which he had read and hidden in his heart his whole life. This Jewish audience, John and all these people at the time, they believed that their Bible was true, inspired, so much so that they were actively looking, right? They're, they're like, these Jewish people are like, the priests are like, are you him? He says, no, but I proclaim him. And then he's saying, well, he's him. And people you'll see throughout the life of Jesus are just weighing his measured truths, all these things he's saying and doing. So why? Why would they trust this book? Well, it's not an ordinary book. Your Bible is not an ordinary book in any sense of the word. And so why, I mean, it might have been good for John. It might have been good for, you know, people at that time. Maybe they didn't know as much of us as we did today. So why, why should we trust it today? And friends, books and books and books have been written on this. So we won't cover everything today. But I want to give you a small snippet, a little picture into just why we trust it today. So one, friends, what you have in front of you, is accurate. The Bible, like I said, is a collection of books. It's a library, 66 books written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors of diverse background, occupation, class, and three languages in times of war, peace, poverty, prosperity, calm, great upheaval, all these things, and on the most profound, controversial topics things that you would never include in your scriptures because you wouldn't think that somebody would, are in there. Searching the heart of man. Yet despite this diversity, there is a unity of thought in the theme with no contradiction of God's redemption in humanity through Jesus Christ. All of your Bible leads uniformly up to Jesus and is a response from him thereon. A unified book over thousands of years. Nothing like it has ever been seen. It's reliable, honestly. I mean, there's, have you guys heard of Homer's Iliad? Right, so I mean, I've never read it, confession, but it's widely considered one of the most accurate ancient texts of all time. So Homer's Iliad, really old, it has, there are 300 known copies, and they're copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, and they would say it's probably about 95% accurate, 
which is an astounding number, 395% accuracy in the Bible. Now, your Bible that's in your hands has over 24,000 copies, 24,000 sources which are being drawn upon to create which is that which is in your hands with 98.5% accuracy. And what I mean by accuracy is there are small discrepancies being ands, does, punctuation, where things are moving, nothing which changes the beliefs of the Christian doctrines and faith. Your Bible is incredibly accurate by secular standards. There is nothing out there like it. And even the time through which uh, the, 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 the copies are found to the possible original authoring of something like the Iliad is, so, is at least five times larger than the time through which we have our earliest books of the Bible. It is so close to the source documents that people all over the world trust its accuracy, but only weigh whether or not they believe it is true. It is reliable. Simply put, it can be trusted. It has been weighed and measured and stood the test of time. There are things called prophecies in your Old Testament. Biblical prophecies, which has been fulfilled. Things that have been talked about with Jesus. And I'll just give you a couple, I'll give you a couple uh, examples, right? There are over 300 major fulfilled specific prophecies which came true in the life of Jesus Christ alone, right? And let's say, let's say he knew his Bible. Let's say there are things that are in his control and he did those things purposefully, right? For argument's sake. Let me tell you, if by chance only eight of those Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled. Prophecies in one chance, it gives us a 10 to the 17th power of whether or not that's possible. That is 17 zeros behind that one. Are you guys with me? That is 100 quadrillion possible chances. The, the chance of whether or not the truth of this claim is true is crazy, and I don't even know how you'd factor 300 prophecies, a one in quadrillion possibilities that eight come, become true. And there are 300 recorded prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. What else makes your Bible unique? Well, it claims to be co-authored with human beings, but inspired by God himself. It says that in places like 1 Peter, where it says, for no prophecy has ever uh, made by man or the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Or 2 Timothy, where it says, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God co-authored. He is the co, he's co, he superintended this process with his Holy Spirit to work alongside and through the hearts and writing of men to create the book in front of you. He didn't just drop it down out of the sky, which many religions teach. He worked with us. And even though we're flawed, he created this incredible and errant book in front of you. Miraculous. The Bible's inspired. It's accurate. And so if it is inspired, if it is accurate, then that means it's authoritative. That means that it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man. Uh, the other day, I was sharing, uh, I had a neighbor who asked me about my faith, my job. 
and uh, as a pastor. And when I shared with him the gospel, he told me to my face, hey, man, I love you, but that's really dumb. <laughs> and imagine, I just, you know, I felt like I kept it together in that moment, but that was kind of offensive. <laughs> and so I, that hurt my feelings, but I love this guy. And his worldview is very different than mine. He has very different glasses on to see the world. And uh, I opened my scriptures, and I got to the f- first Corinthians. And in the second chapter, God spoke to me through his word. He reminded me that those who are in the world, this is foolishness too. But God chose the foolishness of the gospel to shame those who think they're wise. And he encouraged my heart, saying, look, he can't understand this if he doesn't have Christ in his heart. Your friend will never understand. And here's what's cool. When people start to catch this idea, this fire, this, when they start to hide this thing in our heart, when they start to be people of the book, they want to share. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he starts inviting people along. He says, come and see to people like Andrew and Peter and follow me to Philip. And Nathaniel, he sees, and, and this is what the this truth of the scriptures will do. He goes and he shares. He proclaims, right? This is the point uh, to, the, to the truth of the person, the work of Christ, they will invite others to follow them. Jesus even says at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 28 to go and tell other people about these things which I have taught you. When you catch this fire, when you understand that God is working in you, that he requires things of you, that he wants to work with you, then you go. It has real implications in your life and you share those things with other people. And then remember, We have to remember as we close here that Jesus says in John chapter five, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. He's saying, look, this book is important and God has preserved it for a reason. But here's why it's important. The Bible itself cannot give you eternal life. It can point to the one who gives eternal life. Jesus says, it is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Remember, the the law pointed to the need for a savior and the savior came. Sacrifices point to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. Let me close with this. I, um, I got a chance to spend about six months in India. It's an otherworldly type place. It's very interesting Um, it's so different. Lots of people there. Beautiful people, though. And what I did was I I traveled, I helped equip, and I served the church in India, which there is a lot of Christians in India. And one of the places we went was a place where they didn't have Bibles. And so we got Bibles, and we drove them to them, and they got them in their language. And for the first time in their lives, these people had the scriptures in their hands, And you know what they did? They didn't set it on their nightstand and say, sweet, I'll read a couple times this week. They wept. And they soaked the tears of their scriptures, the, the pages of their scriptures in their tears because for the first time, they had the word of God in front of them, which could shape their whole life. And oftentimes, this is so accessible to us that we forget how unique and beautiful it is. We forget how incredible it is that you have this in your hands, the word of God, which can guide you in everything. Let me encourage you. 
that as you weigh whether or not this is true, you can't deny that it is unique, it is reliable and authoritative. So tonight we're gonna talk about if this is true, who is the Jesus it speaks about? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this crew. I pray that your truths, your word, would never become just something we keep on the nightstand, but it would be something that creates a fire in us which leads toward you. God, I pray that we would never just become people of the book for the book's sake, but that, God, your book would lead us to you, that we would love you through your scripture. And, God, if anyone in here does not believe that this is your true word, I ask that they would have the courage to explore it for themselves. Give them that motivation and courage. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.